den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... My name is Jason V. Brock, and I was a close friend of William F. Nolan's. Toward the uh, end of Bill's life, he was actually living at our home with myself and my wife. Her name is Sunny. And we shared a lot of good times together prior to that. He lived with us uh, for the past 13 months before he passed away in July of 2021. But prior to you know, his final, you know, few weeks, I guess, where he was um, having some issues and things like that. He was actually in pretty good health, pretty good spirits. He was still writing. Uh, He was still engaging with people. He was seeing friends. In fact, we had had probably, I want to say about a month prior to that in June, a visit with... uh, some friends of ours, uh, S.T. Joshi, the Lovecraft Authority, and his wife, Mary, they came down from Seattle to visit us. Uh, we live in a place called Vancouver, Washington, which is uh, near Portland, Oregon. It's over the river, the Columbia River. But the Bill that I came to know, I didn't always know Bill, of course, because he was in his 90s when he passed away. And I had known him probably the past 15 years of his life. He was um, a great guy. He had a great sense of humor. That was something we shared in common. We liked cutting up and things like that. And of course, he was a very good writer, you know, and he had been a well-regarded and well-known writer since probably the late 60s, especially when Logan's Run came out. But prior to that, in the 50s, he was with a coterie of others uh, called The Group you know, amongst themselves, but also known as the California Writing School and uh, or, you know, the California Sorcerers, some people called them. And that included uh, his good friend and later a friend of my, my wife and myself, Richard Matheson, uh, Ray Bradbury, whom we also got to know, and George Clayton Johnson, um... So there were a lot of interesting folks there that were in that loop. I didn't meet any of those folks due to Bill's influence. So I met Bill kind of last. In fact, I met Bill by way of uh, George Clayton Johnson. I was interviewing George Clayton Johnson for a movie my wife and I did. Uh, We interviewed George for two documentaries we did. One was called The Acker Monster Chronicles, which was about Forrest J. Ackerman, who is actually Bill's first agent. And the first agent for a lot of people, including Ray Bradbury, but also, and of course, Charles Beaumont, but for a film we did about Charles Beaumont, the writer. And 
as we got to know all these people through the course of doing the interviews, finally one George Clayton Johnson came, <laughs> was uh, asked me, he says, would you like to meet William F. Nolan? And I said, sure. I said, uh, he says, but he was very close friends with Charles Beaumont. And I said, well, that's great. So well, how do I get a hold of him? Do you have contact information? And he says, yes. He lives in Bend, Oregon. And I said, wow, that's interesting because I live in Vancouver, Washington, which is about three hours away. And I thought it was strange because we were in Los Angeles interviewing George, and I just assumed most of the people there would be in and around Los Angeles, which had been the case for the rest of these people in the movie. The film was called Charles Beaumont, The Life of Twilight Zone's Magic Man. So as along the course of that, <clears throat> Bill, I contacted Bill. Once we got home, I, I called him and, you know, that was an inter interesting discussion. And he says, I said, would you like to be interviewed for this film? I'm doing a documentary about Charles Beaumont. And he says, sure. So come on up, uh, come on down and see me. Well, he actually said, come on up, but it was down. And I said, okay. So we scheduled the time to go visit him. My wife and I went and conducted the interview. He was living in a little apartment in Bend. And when that happened, we just struck up an immediate friendship. I mean, Bill was always very friendly with people and accessible. And so we struck up this friendship, and he explained he was up there for, quote-unquote, research purposes. That was all not true. It was just due to some personal situations that he was going through at the time. So... During the course of all this stuff, we, we got to know him, and he would come up and visit us. He was driving at the time. He was in his 70s, you know, then, and so we were dry. He was driving. He drove up to visit us from Bend, uh, had Thanksgiving, I think, one year, and then we drove to see him again, and then vice versa. That happened for a while, and then he said he was going to be moving to Arizona, and I said, wow, that's strange. Why, why would you want to move there? And he says, because it's warm, and there's no wind. And I said, well, they do have monsoon flooding, though. I don't know if that's a good thing. And he says, you know, so I, I talked to him about this, and I said, you know, you've had skin cancer, you know, six times. So I'm, I'm not sure Arizona is a good place for you. Have you considered moving to this area? Because it has, you know, less sun. It still has four seasons, et cetera. So eventually he decided that would be a great place to live, and so we wound up being neighbors. I helped him get settled once he moved here. And he lived in his apartment for years and years, you know, like nine years. And we would see each other like weekly, several times a week. We would wind up collaborating on a bunch of stuff, books and, you know, other things, um, interviews, uh, ma a magazine with a mutual friend named James Beach for a magazine called Dark Discoveries uh, that James later sold. And so we had a real good time with all that stuff. And during the course of that, you know, I was able to help Bill rekindle some friendships that had had kind of lapsed. And that was a real high time for him. You know, he won some awards during that period, and um, I was able to help him facilitate some of that. And then he, you know, needed some more help as he got older. Like towards the end of his 80s, he started needing more help. And I helped him 
with doctors and my wife helped him with medicines and doctors and things like that. So we had a very, very close friendship. You know, he always considered me his best friend and he was one, certainly one of mine. And, um, you know, he didn't have any children or, and no living relatives except, um, uh, a severely estranged wife that he didn't want to have contact with. So, you know, we were kind of his family unit. And so it was natural when he moved in and uh, that was kind of right as COVID was taking over. And so we kept him safe from COVID, and uh, he was able to get vaccinated. Unfortunately, his last hospital stay, which was due to a UTI, a urinary tract infection, kind of like what recently happened with uh, President Clinton, uh, the staff who was unvaccinated infected Bill with COVID-19, and that did not help his situation, you know, and we couldn't see him at the end because you weren't allowed to visit people in that had COVID. And this was right at the beginning of the big Delta surge uh, in Washington State and across the country, too. And unfortunately, I think that did contribute to his to his demise. And so the best things I want to say about Bill are we loved him. And, you know, he, we were a very close unit. We went lots of places together. Um, we made the best of a, a scenario with the pandemic that we could. And uh, unfortunately, it got out of our hands with the hospital. But because Bill, although he was fully vaccinated, he had a breakthrough case, and uh, which was part of a cluster of cases um, that happened in this, in this same hospital. 29 people have breakthrough cases because the staff... Um, infected them, uh, unfortunately. So I have a feeling Bill could have hung on there, I think, until he might have hit 100. You know, he was 93, and he was, I think, in good condition to hit 94 if that hadn't happened. But it is what it is, and we, you know, don't have him around now. I sure miss him. I mean, I know my wife does too, and we talk about him quite a bit. And um, he wanted me to take over his his stuff, you know, like Logan's Run and all these other things of his, his uh, short fiction and shepherd that around. I have enough for uh, another collection of his, of things that haven't been collected in place. And I do have some un, um, some unpublished short stories and things like that. I even have an unpublished novel that he was working on at the end of his life that I think that we he did he completed it. So I think that maybe I can do some edits and fix it up and make sure that it's presentable as far as formatting and everything, and maybe get that out the to the world. And he completed his autobiography also, so I hope to one day get that to where it can be, you know, for public consumption. And he knew a lot of people and a lot of things, did a lot of interesting things. He used to race cars and all this kind of stuff. So he was a really fascinating guy and uh, a gentle, caring person. Um, loved animals, you know, like myself and my wife, he was a vegetarian, had been well before we met him. So was George Clayton Johnson. And so I think it's great that people are still interested in his work. I think he's an important writer and I think he's done a lot of good stuff. So I think that we'll, uh, still have some Bill Nolan stuff coming out there. And there are things happening with Logan too. I can't talk about them, but there are going to be some big things happening, I think. So, 
you know, let's just all think about Bill every now and then and enjoy some of his stories and his fiction and and that's kind of what there is to say at the moment. All right, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My name is Dolly by William F. Nolan, narrated by Nancy Bueller. Monday. Today I met the witch, which is a good place to start this diary. I had to look up how to spell it. First I spelled it dairy, but that's a place you get milk, and from this you're going to get blood, so it is plenty different. Let me tell you about Meg. She's maybe a thousand years old. A witch can live forever, right? She's all gnarly like the bark of an oak tree. Her skin, I mean, and she has real big eyes. Like looking into deep, dark caves, and you don't know what's down there. Her nose is hooked, and she has sharp teeth like a cat's are. When she smiles, some of them are missing. Her hair is all wild and clumpy, and she smells bad. Guess she hasn't had a shower for a real long time. Wears a black dress with holes bit in it. By rats, most likely. She lives in this old, deserted, cobwebby boathouse they don't use anymore on the lake, and it's full of fat gray rats. Old Meg doesn't seem to mind. My name is Dolly, short for Dorothy like in the Oz books, only nobody ever calls me Dorothy. I'm still a kid and not very tall and I've got red hair and freckles. I really hate freckles. When I was real little, I tried to rub them off, but you can't. They stick just like tattoos do. Reason I went out to the lake to see old Meg is because of how much I hate my father. Well, he's not really my father since I'm adopted and I don't know my real father. Maybe he's a nice man and not like Mr. Brubaker who adopted me. Mrs. Brubaker died of the flu last winter, which is when Mr. Brubaker began to molest me. I looked up the word molest, and it's the right one for what he keeps trying to do with me. When I won't let him, he gets really mad and slaps me, and I run out of the house until he's all calmed down again. Then he'll get special nice and offer me cookies with chocolate chunks in them, which are my very favorite kind. He wants me to like him so he can molest me later. Last week I heard about the witch who lives by the lake. A friend at school told me. Some of the kids used to go down there to throw rocks at her until she put a spell on Lucy Aikens, and Lucy ran away and no one's seen her since. Probably she's dead. The kids leave old Meg alone now. I thought maybe Meg could put a spell on Mr. Brubaker for $5. I saved up that much, which is why I went to see her. She said she couldn't because she can't put spells on people unless she can see them up close and look in their eyes like she did to Lucy Aikens. The lake was black and smelly with big gas bubbles breaking in it, and the boathouse was cold and damp and the rats scared me, but old Meg was the only way I knew to get even with Mr. Brubaker. She kept my five dollars and told me she was going into town soon and would look around for something to use against Mr. Brubaker. I promised to come see her on Friday after school. We'll have his blood, she said. Friday night. I went to see old Meg again, and she gave me the doll to take home. A real big one, as tall as I am, with freckles and red hair just like mine and in a pretty pink dress with little black slippers with red bows on them. The doll's eyes open and close, and she has a big metal key in her back where you wind her up. When you do, she opens her big dark eyes and says, Hello, my name is Dolly. Same as mine. I asked Meg where she found Dolly, and she said at Mr. Carter's toy store. But I've been in there lots of times, and I've never seen a doll like this for five dollars. Take her home, Meg told me, and she'll be your friend. I was real excited and ran off, pulling Dolly behind me. She has a box with wheels on it. You put her inside and pull along the sidewalk. She's too big to carry. Monday. Mr. Brubaker doesn't like Dolly. He says she's damn strange. That's his words, damn strange. But she's my new friend, so I don't care what he says about her. He wouldn't let me take her to school. Saturday. I took some of Mr. Brubaker's hair to old Meg today. 
She asked me to cut some off while he was asleep at night, and it was really hard to do without waking him up, but I got some and gave it to her. She wanted me to bring Dolly, and I did, and Meg said that Dolly was going to be her agent. That's the word, agent. I try to get all the words right. Dolly had opened her deep, dark eyes and seen Mr. Brubaker, and old Meg said that was all she needed. She wrapped two of Mr. Brubaker's hairs around the big metal key in Dolly's back and told me not to wind her up again until Sunday afternoon when Mr. Brubaker was home watching his sports. He always does that on Sunday. So I said, okay. Sunday night. This afternoon, like always, Mr. Brubaker was watching a sports game on the television when I set Dolly right in front of him and did just what old Meg told me to do. I wound her up with the big key and then took the key out of her back and put it in her right hand. It was long and sharp and Dolly opened her eyes and said, Hello, my name is Dolly, and stuck the metal key in Mr. Brubaker's chest. There was a lot of blood. I told you there would be. Mr. Brubaker picked Dolly up and threw the front of her into the fire. I mean, that's how she landed, just the front of her at the edge of the fire. It's winter now and real cold in the house without a fire. After he did that, he fell down and didn't get up. He was dead, so I called Dr. Thompson. The police came with him and rescued Dolly out of the fire when I told them what happened. Her nice red hair was mostly burnt away, and the whole left side of her face was burnt real bad, and the paint had all peeled back and blistered. And one of her arms had burnt clear off, and her pink dress was all char-colored and with big fire holes in it. The policeman who rescued her said that a toy doll couldn't kill anybody, and that I must have stuck the key into Mr. Brubaker's chest and blamed it all on Dolly. They took me away to a home for bad children. I didn't tell anybody about old Meg. Tuesday. It's a long time later, and my hair is real pretty now, and my face is almost healed. The lady who runs this house says there will always be big scars on the left side of my face, but I was lucky not to lose my eye on that side. It is hard to eat and play with the other kids with just one arm, but that's okay, because I can still hear Mr. Brubaker screaming and see all the blood coming out of his chest, and that's nice. I wish I could tell old Meg thank you. I forgot to, and you should always thank people for doing nice things for you. Hi, Mom, by William F. Nolan, read by Wesley Critchfield. Among items found by the police in the apartment of William Charles Kelso, 4200 East Ivy, Hayes City, Kansas. Item, a pair of recently severed human hands, female, each fingernail lettered in red nail polish. B-I-L-L-Y on left hand, K-E-L-S-O, on right hand, lettering identified by suspect, William Charles Kelso. Item, a baby's plastic rattle, pink, apparently belonged to the subject, W-C-K, when infant. Item, a sportsman's hunting knife with a yellow bone handle, human hair adhering. Bloodstains on blade from victims. Various. Item. Photo, undated, of W.C.K. As a young boy, five or six, standing in the backyard of an unidentified house next to his mother, Mrs. Ella Patrick Kelso. Mother's features, Caucasian, defaced by knife cuts across the photo. Word, slut, written in blue ink by subject in margin of photo, with an arrow pointing to Mrs. Kelso. Item, scrap of paper on what appears to be butcher's paper, undated. 
writing in pencil on paper by subject. I am a void. I am not part of this planet. There is no Billy Kelso. Item. Snapshot. Faded. No date. Of Mr. and Mrs. Kelso seated on the cement steps outside of an apartment house. Location unknown. With subject in the arms of Ella Kelso. Father is black. Full name, Leonard Edward Kelso. Written across the back of the snapshot in blue ink in the subject's hand. This is the only photo I have of my father. The bastard split when I was four. Used to beat up my mom when he got drunk. She is deaf in one ear because of a table fork he stuck in there. I hope he got cancer. I hope it hurt a lot and that he rots. Item. A type school report sent to Mrs. Kelso from grade school teacher Catherine Vane in 1966 when the subject was eight years old. Your son Billy is a very difficult child to control in class. He openly rebels in all forms of discipline. On the playground today, he attacked a smaller boy with a wooden bat and had to be physically restrained. Billy is aloof and made no friends among his classmates. If his behavior does not show marked improvement over the remainder of the semester, he will be expelled. Subject added in blue ink at the bottom of the page. Mom whipped me plenty bad for this with her leather belt. Later I was real dizzy and started spitting blood. Mom says maybe I've got an ulcer. Item. A membership card for an organization known to be on the anti-American list by the FBI. The card is marked, cancelled, non-Caucasian. Item. A human ear, female. Found in Ziploc bag in suspect's refrigerator. Item. A poem, undated, pencil, in subject's hand. Moonlight eating, severed flesh, in dreams of icy death. Item, a loose news clip from the Daily Register, Benford, Illinois, July 10th, 1968. Cat mystery solved. Local boy admits to killing felines. In response to a neighbor's phone call, local police entered the home of Mrs. Leonard Kelso, 1222 Vincent Avenue. They discovered the decomposed bodies of some two dozen cats listed by the owners as missing over the past year. The animals were buried in the dirt in one corner of the Kelso apartment. They were headless. Mrs. Kelso's 10-year-old son, William, told the police that he was responsible for slaying these animals, but he could not remember what he'd done with the heads. The boy was taken to juvenile hall. Item, a child's sketch done by Kelso, done when the subject was attending grade school in Benford. A colored crayon sketch showing a row of downtown office buildings with red and yellow tongues of flame coming out of the windows. At the bottom of this sketch in the child's hand, Fire is nice. Item, an untitled story written in pencil by Kelso when a schoolboy. In blue lines tablet, no date. Once upon a time there was a little boy named Billy who had a daddy who was called a nasty word and used to hit his mom before he went away to a nasty place. Billy was also called that name, but his mother told him that he was white, like her, so he didn't know which he was, and he wanted to run away with the circus and get his face painted all colors like the clowns. Item. A plastic bag found in the subject's bedroom, stuffed with human hair, used as a pillow. Item. A copy of the Benford High School yearbook from 1975. On page 79, is a graduation photo of the subject with a description underneath. Billy, independent, quiet, not one of the crowd, a nut for boxing. Don't get him sore at you. Odd sense of humor, like small animals. 
Ambition to be an undertaker. He's got to be kidding. Item. Private reel-to-reel tape recording. Tape begins. Voice of a young woman. What is this? Are you recording us? Voice of Kelso. That's right. Woman. Well, shut it off! I didn't come here to be put on some tape! Watch your mouth. I don't like to hear that kind of talk, lady. And who says I'm a lady? Okay. Are you going to shut it off or not? No, I'm not. Then I'm splitting. Since we didn't do anything, I'll just charge you ten bucks for coming over. You're not leaving. The hell I'm not. I don't dig freaks. Get out of my way, damn you. Sounds of struggle. You are never going to leave me again, Ella. I'm not Ella. Who is Ella? Time to die, slut. Struggle intensifies. Sounds of blows. High-pitched scream. Gasping and silence. Tape ends. Item. Pair of initialed white silk underpants. The initials EK, thought to have belonged to the subject's mother, slashed repeatedly with knife. Item. Letter, handwritten, dated November 7th, 1984. From ex-convict Alvin P. Stegmeyer to the subject, then living in Indianapolis. Dear Billy. Hey, old buddy, how are things? You promised you'd keep in touch when you left the joint. How come I never hear from you? As for me, just like I told you, I'm back in KC, in the plant, working as a meat packer. Job is okay. I'm back with my girl, Nancy. You getting any? I hope you are. Why not come to KC and visit an old pal? Have you watched one of those 500 indie races yet? I hear they're great to see a lot of crashes against the wall. Ha <laughs> ha. I'd better go. Take it easy, buddy. Let me hear from you. Your friend, Al. P.S. Still looking for your mom? As for me, I never want to set eyes on my old lady again. She never done anything good for me. Or my sisters or my brothers either. That's for sure. Maybe because you don't have any sisters or brothers, your mom treated you better. Anyway, hope you find her. See ya, Al. Item, a magazine article, torn from a copy of Psychology Today, dated October 3rd, 1985. Titled, Portrait of a Compulsive Killer, by Annie Franklin. The following paragraph is underlined in red by the subject. With each subsequent murder, this type of maladjusted individual compulsively repeats his ongoing pattern of violence. He is unaware why he must kill, since the elements leading up to his acts are usually deep-rooted in childhood, and he has no conscious realization of what motivates him. He is satisfied only with the death of his latest victim, usually chosen at random. This pattern remains unbroken until he is either apprehended or commits suicide. Between killings, he may experience severe guilt or remorse for his aberrant behavior, but these periods are not constant. Item. A list scribbled in the subject's own hand on a sheet of lined paper. Killer dog. Break into her house. Killer. Get memento. Maybe her thumbs. Burn house. Item. A scrapbook of news clips collected by the subject relating to murders ascribed to William Charles Kelso. Co-ed found fatally stabbed in underground parking lot. Mother and baby slain in home. Teenagers beaten to death on highway. Pattern of knife murders point to serial killer. Item. A postcard from the subject. Sent from a motel in Jasper, Wyoming. To Kelso's mother in Chicago. Dated December 15, 1984. Card was returned. Stamped. Address unknown. 
Hi, Mom. Plenty cold this time of year in Wyoming. In Chicago, too, I know. The wind sounds like people screaming. How are you? I'm pretty good except for the bad dreams that keep me awake some nights. You can write me care of the post office in Jasper in case I leave this motel. Working as a fry cook in a burger place. I'm doing okay, but I need to see you. Your son, Billy. Item. A poem written on the back of a large brown mailing envelope in the subject's hand, not dated. Teeth of acid. Tear my flesh. Young flowers bleed. Worms of fire consume me. Item. Final section of a printed transcript from a televised interview with the subject. Show titled Insights, telecast over KRROV-TV, Missoula, Montana, during August of 1988. Interviewer, Dean Hawkins. Hawkins. And despite the fact that you warned your psychiatrist that you are still a danger to society and could not fulfill a function outside of prison, the parole board nevertheless released you? Kelso. Yes, they did. The prisons in this country. They're very overcrowded, and they don't care much who they let out onto the streets. I kept trying to tell them that I wasn't fit to leave. That I didn't want to leave. So you're telling us you like living in a prison environment? No, I'm not really saying that. I, well, I guess I do like prison better than being outside where there's no control. What is it you're trying to control? The things I do. I don't like doing them. Then why do them? Because I have to. I don't seem to be able to have any choice. Just what things are you talking about? Um, well, I can't say them. I don't want to talk about them. I got in prison for robbing a store to get some food after I lost a job I had. But I never got caught for doing what bothers me. Are you, as of today, a danger to society? Yes, I am. That's true. What do you want to do with your life, Billy? Get stopped. End it. I just... I think it's better if I'm dead. That would be better for everybody. But what about your family? Don't you have people who care about you? I got no brothers or sisters. Pop left us when I was real small, and Mom split when I was ten. Said she couldn't handle me anymore. She puts me in a home where I ran away. I looked for her, but I, I could never find her. And now I, I don't care. Maybe she's ill and can't contact you. A mother's love is a strong force. Mom never loved me. She used to beat me with that belt of hers, had a heavy metal buckle on it that would cut me up pretty bad. I got lots of scars on me from that buckle. I'd get terrible headaches after she beat me. I couldn't even think straight. And that's when I got the cat from the street and... And what, Billy? I'm not going to talk about that. I need to find my mom and tell her about how much she hurt me as a kid. I guess she doesn't care. I see. Why did you volunteer to come here today, Billy? 
to tell people about how horrible these parole boards are. They'll let you out of prison when you're not ready to be outside. It's a bad thing for them to do. Very, very bad. We, uh, certainly thank you for your honesty. There's no doubt that our overcrowded prison system is in severe need of adjustment. Thank you for coming here today to tell us your story. I didn't tell a lot. I left a lot out, the worst parts. I'd really like to be dead now. Note. With regard to the case of William Charles Kelso. Conclusion. Computer transcript of signed statement from Ella Patrick Kelso, freely given in the presence of Chief of Police Darren Arnwood and the police stenographer Philip Easton at police headquarters. Hay City, Kansas, dated June 21st, 1990. And when I got there to his apartment, I found blood. Billy was sitting on the couch in his sweatshirt, drinking a beer and watching TV. There was blood on his hands and all over his pants and shirt, and I knew he'd killed somebody else. I'd been reading about him, and I, I knew it was my boy, Billy, doing all these things. He was rotten, like his father. Just no damn good, ever. Didn't give me a minute's peace the entire time I had him with me. I never wanted to be the mother of some freak kid like he was. I prayed to the good Lord to deliver me from such a burden. Billy did sick things from the start, and whipping him didn't change him any. It just made him meaner. Maybe it was in his mixed blood. I never should have married no black man, that's for sure. One summer, Billy set six fires downtown, and nobody knew it was him. I heard he'd been looking for me a long time, and I heard that he was in Kansas working at a bakery. So I drove out there to Hayes City, to Billy's apartment. And when he looked up with real surprise to see me, he said, Hi, Mom. And I shot him. Six times. In the head and chest. With a boy like that, you just have to do your duty as a mother. So I did just that. I did my duty. <laughs>